We're going to dig into the first nine verses here. And um, let's go ahead and begin. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. And then we'll pray. Paul, a bondservant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the foreknowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me to the commandment of our God and Savior, our God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. Grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. I thank you, God, for each one of these men, many of them that I know fairly well. And I thank you, Lord, for their hearts. I thank you for their desire to be here tonight and to to just learn and to dig into your word together. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you would enlighten us, that you would do a work, Lord, in our hearts, and that you would be preparing each one of us for the role that you have for us to play in your kingdom in this season of our lives. And so we give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we learn here right away in verse 1 that Paul is the author of this book. And I want you to notice that he calls himself a bondservant of God. And the term bondservant is one that was used, um, it meant a willing servant. Because in that culture, a slave could serve, he, would, he was required to serve his master for seven years. At the end of seven years, if he really, really liked his master, if he enjoyed you know, the house that he was serving in, he could, instead of going free, he could willingly make himself that person's servant for life. And so they called it a bond servant. They would get a special, special earring that they would wear. So everyone would know, hey, that guy must have a great master because he has chosen to make himself a bond servant. So that's how Paul refers to himself here, a bond servant, a willing servant of God. And then he uses the term apostle. Apostle means sent one, and he's a bond servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So we could say that Paul was a willing servant of Jesus sent out by Jesus. So he was not serving the Lord out of compulsion or because he had to or he was being made to, but because he wanted to. And it's interesting to me that Paul often connects his calling to both Jesus and God the Father in the way he opens up his books. And I think the reason why he does that is right in his introductions, it's Paul's way of drawing attention to the deity of Christ. Let me give you another example in 1 Timothy 1. It'll be on the screen. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior, note that, and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. So he refers to God the Father as Savior and Jesus as 
Lord. He's drawing attention there to the deity of Christ. In Romans chapter 1, we see it again. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Now, usually the gospel is referred to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But again, here, he's drawing attention to. And this is one of the things that we're going to see is a, a big theme that is in most of Paul's books, and we'll see it also here in the book of Titus. In verse 1, we see Paul's purpose. And I'm going to read verse 1 in um, the, new, the second part of verse 1 in the New Living Translation. I think it kind of sets this up really nicely. Um, it'll be on the screen. Paul says, I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. And so Paul's saying, this is my purpose. It's to proclaim faith to those that God has chosen and to teach them truth that leads. Truth is meant to lead to godliness. And so that's his purpose. And then in verses 2 and 3, we see his message. Again, I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. So I think it explains this fairly well. This truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. And now at just the right time, he has revealed this message, which we announce to everyone that it is by the command of God, our Savior, that I have been entrusted with this work for him. He says, God has, this is the message. God has provided a way of eternal life and it's found in Jesus Christ. The next thing we see that Paul mentions is his audience. He says that he's writing to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. May God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior give you grace and peace. His son in the faith. Sons in the faith are people that we have led to Christ. It's people that we are discipling and mentoring in the faith. And you know what? I would hope that all of us here would have a son or sons in the faith. As a man, I think it is one of the greatest things that you can experience is that you take, the most exciting is when you can lead somebody to Jesus and then disciple them disciple them in the Lord. But sometimes it's maybe not somebody that you've led to the Lord, but it's somebody that has just come to the Lord, that's come into your life, and you get the opportunity to take them under your wing and mentor them and talk with them and meet with them in the faith. How many of you had somebody in your life that did that to you? Okay, quite a few of you. I know I did. And man, I am so thankful for the men that, that took time to pour into me in that type of way. I am forever grateful for them. So all of us should really aspire and be praying that God would give us a Timothy or God would give us a Titus. Those were two of Paul's sons in the faith. But I'll tell you this, if you are a dad here, that needs to start with your own son. If you, if you have a son, it needs to start with your own kids. That, that you are discipling your own children and raising them, them up in the Lord. That needs to be first. And I think one of the things that has grieved me in ministry is watching guys used mightily by the Lord in discipling others and leading others to Christ and being used all over the world whose own kids wanted nothing to do with Jesus. 
That is one of the most grieving things. That should not be. I would rather, I, I mean, I've been fortunate to be able to have been used by the Lord in, in so many different ways, but I would rather only have, you know, led one person to Jesus if my, and had my kids walking with the Lord. If you can have both, that's great. But it starts with our home. And that's one of the things that we're going to see as this begins to break down. Paul was one of, um, or Titus was one of Paul's sons in the faith. And as we noted last week, his partner in ministry. If you missed our intro last week, I encourage you to go online and watch it. But we're going to see tonight, and this is where we're really going to focus now in verses five through nine. And this is the mission entrusted to Titus. Read with me verse five. He says, for this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast to the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So notice here, this is the mission. This is where it starts that Paul gives to Titus. Set in order the things that are lacking. He left him there in Crete to deal with these church groups. Most likely they were home churches in various cities around the island of Crete. And Paul left Titus there to set things in order in these places. That phrase to set in order means to make straight to align or to make upright. It's the picture of what an orthodontist does in setting teeth straight. How many of you had braces? Okay, so did I. Um, can't tell from my bottom teeth. They've moved as I got older. But, but yeah, I had uh, braces. And, and what do they do? They, they're setting in order your teeth. It's the same idea of an orthopedic surgeon, what he does in setting a broken bone. How many of you have broken a bone before? I mean, have, his, have you ever broken it where it was like, you know, like your arm is clear over here, you know, type of thing? I mean, it's just gross. Or he's like, oh, that's nasty, you know. And what is that? Orthopedic, he takes it and he sets it straight. And he puts a cast on it, and then so it helps it to heal. That's the idea here. Taking that which was crooked and twisted, and it was his job to make it straight. And as long, here's the thing we need to understand. As long as there are broken people in the church, how many of you know there's broken people in the church? How many of you are a broken person in the church? <laughs> I say that all the time. None of us have arrived. We're all broken people who are in the process of being transformed by a loving Redeemer. So as long as there are broken people like me and like you in the church, people who are sinners, there's always going to be the need to set things in order. In other words, it's a never-ending task. 
But what Paul is talking about here, he's speaking of the overall setting things in order, setting things in place that need to be in place for the body, for the church to function properly. For the church to function in a way that is going to allow it to grow and allow people in the body to be built up. And it seems that this is something that Paul had instructed Titus to do previously. And he's exhorting him again to follow through because notice he says there, as I have commanded you. And the idea there is I previously told you this and I'm telling you again now. I'm reminding you of your mission. How many of us need reminding? I do. Peter said, I do not seek, do not hesitate to remind you to remind your, your pure minds or to, to, to encourage you by way of reminder. We need those reminders. So Paul is doing that here. And, and the healthy church starts with healthy leadership. So he says, appoint elders. So tonight I want to talk about elders. The term elder, bishop, and pastor are terms used interchangeably in the New Testament, and they're all referring to the same office, the same position in the church. Elder refers to the man. It speaks of one who is mature in the Lord, not necessarily an elder in age. What I mean by that, there, there are those who are, can be elders who are young. If they're proven, Tyler, how old are you? 25. 25. Tyler is a young man. He's 25 years old, but he's, he's an elder in our church. He's a pastor in our church. And he has proven himself to be seasoned as a young man in his walk with the Lord and in, in his calling. So elder describes the man, it speaks of a maturity that he has spiritually. And again, it, it, you know, remember what Paul told Timothy, he said, hey, Timothy was a pastor, he says, hey, don't let anyone despise your youth. So those of you who are younger guys, you need to understand that, that you don't have to be old, you don't have to be, you know, a guy can be old physically and not be qualified to be an elder because he's not old spiritually, because he doesn't have, he's not seasoned in his walk with the Lord. So elder describes the man. Bishop describes the ministry. The word bishop simply means overseer. And it means to look after the needs of the flock, to watch out for wolves, to make sure that the body is being taken care of. It's it's, and in order to oversee, if you're going to be an overseer, the only way you can do that is by being around, okay? So somebody who is a, an elder is going to be somebody who is around the flock, who's going to be with the flock, looking to oversee the flock. So elder describes the man, bishop describes the ministry to oversee, and pastor describes the method, which is to feed and to tend, the word ten means to care for. Remember in John chapter 21, when Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, remember he said to Peter, he asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And each time he said, then feed my lambs and tend my sheep. 
That was the calling that he had as a pastor, was to feed and to tend. So, elder describes the man, bishop describes the ministry to oversee, pastor decides describes the method to feed and to tend. And so elders care for the flock by watching over them, seeking to protect them from danger and false teaching, to protect them from predators, those who want to come in and take advantage of the flock. And you know, in a church our size, this happens often. That there are guys who come wandering in the door and they're trying to get in people's pocket financially. They're trying to, you know, uh, manipulate people towards, you know, different, you know, things. And so our elders are always watching out for, you know, guys that look like they, that's their M.O. And we've had to drive a lot of guys off like that. In fact, there, I remember years ago, there's a guy who came in, and this was his M.O., but he actually, he made it into the sanctuary, he sat through the message, and I was up here up front afterwards, and he came up, and he introduced himself as Jesus Christ. Seriously. And I looked at him, I said, you are not Jesus Christ, and you need to get out of here right now, you know? Because I knew, I just knew what he was about. And he literally looked at me, and he did this, like he was wiping the dust off his feet, you know, and, and going to walk out the doors. But this happens all the time. People coming in wanting to, you know, take advantage of the flock and, and want to, you know, get, get uh, they want to be on the platform. You know, they've got a message that they, and, and so we're watching out. The, the elders are to watch out for that. They watch out for the, the flock, the health of the flock. Is the body healthy? Is the body staying focused on Jesus? This is one of the things we talk about in our elder meetings. I mentioned last week that, you know, we in our church, our elders represent all the different areas and people groups within our church. And so we'll talk about and I'll ask, you know, hey, what are you guys sensing? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? You'll find most of our elders on a Sunday morning after church out in the courtyard. And they're out there mingling, and they're watching, and they're looking for opportunities to, to minister. And I'll ask them, I'll say, what, what are you sensing, and what are, what are you seeing? And sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll say, you know, gosh, it seems like everybody I'm talking to is really struggling in this way, or they're stressed out, and another guy will chime in with that, and another guy will mention that. And it's a, a way of just, you know, kind of getting a, the, the read on, hey, what's going on in the flock right now? What's going on in the body so elders watch out for the flock. Elders care for the flock, seeking to minister to the needs of others. Sometimes that's practically. Finding out, hey, somebody needs, uh, they're moving and they need some help. Let's round up some guys to go over there and do that. They'll care for the flock by discipling others, encouraging and counseling and, and building up the body. This is, this is the role of elders. Elders also care for the flock by helping people in the body discover their gifts. I think that's one of the primary roles of the elders, helping others in the, the body discover how maybe God wants to use them and how they can be used and coming up and, and saying as they're getting to know them, you know, hey, I think that you'd be great at this or this would be a great opportunity for you to get involved there. So an elder is a guy who is seasoned. He's someone who has been around the ministry, has some understanding of the sacrifice and commitment involved as well as the, where, the wealth, the warfare. Because the warfare, man, it is intense. 
There's been a lot of warfare going on last couple days around here. A lot of intense warfare going on around here. And just some, from, from the outside, the enemy just seeking to attack the flock here. And it's heavy. And, and you, the elders, they, they wear that. They're, they're concerned about that. So when God is calling a man into the office of an elder, I think there are four things that point to that calling. That if you've ever wondered, is God calling me, you know, to be an elder, you know, in our church? Is that something that he has for me? These are four things that you can point to. And the first is this, that the man points to himself. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, we read that this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. So it starts there with a desire. Man, I'd like to be used in that way. Now, let me just say this. You need, though, to understand what the calling is about and what the cost is and what the sacrifice is. And in Paul's day, it was a lot worse. In Peter and Paul's day, man, it was a lot more um, difficult than today because anybody that wanted to be an elder, they were the first ones targeted. For persecution. When they were standing up and accepting that role to be an elder, it was like putting a bullseye on their back. They were going to be the first ones killed, first ones targeted. Now, of course, that's not the day and age that we are living in, but there needs to be a sense of understanding the calling, the sacrifice, and what's involved. So the person desiring the office of an elder needs to count the cost. But it starts with that, a desire. He points to himself like, hey, I think that might be something that God has for me. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with desiring. I'd like to be used in in that type of way. I have a heart for people, and I I love to disciple people and take them through the word. And, you know, just a sense of, of that type of drawing towards people and loving to see people grow in the Lord. That can be the first indication that maybe God is calling you to that type of ministry. So first of all, the man points to himself. Secondly, the Holy Spirit points to the man. Galatians chapter 5. And what, what I mean by this is that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is going to be real evident in that person's life. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is going to be seen, that, that they're going to be somebody that loves people. They're going to be somebody that has joy in serving, that it's not going to be a burden to them. That they're going to be someone who is patient with people and kind to people and faithful and dependable. Not perfect, but exuding the characteristics of Jesus. In other words, it's not going to be somebody who is a jerk or somebody who's impatient with people. He will not be someone that people can't trust. But on the contrary, he, his very character and way of carrying himself will have the way of building confidence in others, that people will just naturally be drawn to him. Wait, will you pray for me? Man, I'm going through this. And, and they'll just know, I can trust that whatever I tell this guy, he's not going to blab it to a bunch of other people. He's going to pray for me. He's going to continue to pray for me. He's going to, you know, he prayed for me last week. And then a week later, he asked me, hey, how are you going? That's the heart. So the Holy Spirit is evident, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 
This is an observation that I've made. Is that a lot of times guys who are called are guys who have been successful in other areas like their careers. But they're faithful guys. They're dependable. They have that that self-control. They're not failures everywhere in life. Because I've met guys who say, you know, man, I can't hold a job and, you know, I, I just get fired all the time and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a lousy worker, but boy, I can talk. I think God wants me to be a preacher. No, I've met guys like that. That's in like their mentality, you know. And no, 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 that, that's, that, that's not. That, that self-control, that discipline will be a part of that. We look for men here who are proven to be faithful in their homes, faithful in their workplace. I've actually had conversations with employers that I've called. Somebody who that we were considering for, to be an elder and say, tell me about this guy, how he works. Tell me about his work ethic. Tell me about how dependable he is. Because those are the kind of guys that God is is looking for. So the man points to himself. He has that desire. The second thing the Holy Spirit points to the man, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is evident in his life. The third thing is the sheep point to the man. Remember in Acts chapter 6? In Acts chapter 6, we see there that there was a dispute that arose amongst the early church. And it happened because the widows, the Hellenist widows, were not being properly taken care of in the distribution of the food. And so they came to the apostles and complained. This is real early in the midst of the early church. It was kind of the first big problem that arose. And remember what the apostles did? They said this, choose. Now, these men were going to be deacons, but in Timothy, the qualifications for deacons and elders are, are pretty similar but the point I want to make is this, is, is the apostles said, choose from among yourselves men who are full of the Holy Spirit, have a good reputation, and who are men of wisdom. And so my point is this, is the, the body, the church, was able to pick out these men. They could identify them. Okay, that guy, he fits that description. He fits that criteria. The sheep point to the men. Jesus said in John chapter 10 that the sheep know the voice of the shepherd. And I think sheep recognize the shepherds, those who have that shepherd hearts among them, those who have that type of heart and that type of caring, who are drawn to people in that type of way. And I have always said that our body, when anybody becomes a part of our leadership team or anybody, you know, becomes one of our pastors and we, we put them up or, you know, we post their page on, picture on our webpage or, or they get up and, and share, you know, at one of our uh, gatherings, the body should never, ever have this response. That guy? Like, Really? They should never, ever think that. It should always be like, oh, he's an elder? That makes perfect sense. I've been watching him. I've seen his heart for people. I've seen how he's always around. He's always serving. He's always seeking for ways you know, that, that God can use him. So the sheep point to the man. The man points to himself. The Holy Spirit points to the man. And then finally, the fourth, the present leadership will point to the man. 
Meaning that they will recognize the calling that is on that person's life. That's really what ordination is all about. When we ordain somebody as a pastor, all we're saying is that we recognize the call. We recognize the calling on their life. You see, Paul warned in 1 Timothy chapter 3 about not putting somebody in a position of leadership who he called a novice. That was somebody who, novice means they're unproven. He says, don't put anybody in that position because they might get swelled up or or they, they might become prideful by that so so the the idea is that paul would say is don't lay hands on somebody suddenly don't lay hands on them too soon and this is the biggest mistake that i see guys make who are pastoring churches i have pastors that often call me and they you know want advice about different things and and this is one that i've seen just so often over the years as guys are are starting off their their churches and and they need help it's hard to, to church plant, and, and they need help, and so they right away want to appoint elders, and it's kind of like, okay, is he saved? Is he breathing? Yes, he's qualified. And so they put somebody you know, in a position, and it's just, it's wrong. They're not ready. And the biggest mistake I see is that, that churches make is they give somebody, listen, a title or a position hoping that it is going to lead to faithfulness and fruit. That's wrong. What we want to do is see people who are being faithful and who are bearing fruit, and then that is what is qualifying them to step into a role to lead and to be used. So those are the ways that a man gets into the position of leadership here at our church. Is, and I think this is biblical. The man, first of all, points to himself, 1 Timothy chapter 3. The Holy Spirit points to the man. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the characteristics of Jesus are evident in his life. Um, Galatians chapter 5. The sheep point to the man that they see his heart, that he has that shepherd's heart. John 10, Acts 6. And then the leadership point to the man to see that he is proven in his character. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, for the rest of our time tonight, we're going to look at the qualifications that Paul describes here in verses 5 through 9. And I want you to note the first qualification that he gives for being an elder, this is both in Titus and in Timothy, is that he's a man. That he's a man. Women, as wonderful as they are, are not called to be elders or pastors in churches i think a woman can do anything in the church except be a pastor every qualification that you read tells us clearly that it is the role it's the office of a man now i have some friends in their church denominations their wives are pastors and you know they are ordained and i don't split hairs over that with them 
It's like, hey, if that's your deal, you know, I don't think that's what the Bible says. I think it's pretty clear, but, you know, they're not heretics for that. But I do think it's, it is in error. Women can be used. They can lead worship. Women can, you know, teach in groups and different things. Women can lead. I mean, we have some women here who lead and administrate and, and, and do incredible things, but they can't hold that position, that role of elder or pastor. But notice the qualifications that he brings. The first is he uses the word blameless in verse 6 and 7. The word blameless means above reproach or not chargeable with some offense. Now, I want you to catch this. It doesn't mean that there cannot be an accusation. I've had many people accuse me of different things over the years. Falsely. In fact, I had somebody just yesterday send somebody an email where they were, you know, accusing me of things that I had no idea what they were even talking about. But they, people do that. You know, there's a target on your back and they're, they're looking for ways to um, do that. But what it means is that it simply means the accusation, once investigated, cannot be found to be true. There's no blame, they're blameless. When blameless is properly understood as relating to one's community reputation, and it's both inside and outside the church. Paul would say this in 1 Timothy 3, verse 7, Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are on the outside. Not just the inside, but those who are outside. Those of you who are businessmen. And you're leading businesses. If we were to call your clients and say, hey, tell me about him, they, they should be able to give a good re- report of your work and your heart and the, your honesty among them. The standards for Christian leadership strictly relate to one's example before others. And understanding the requirements for elders relate primarily to how one lives his life before others. That he and his family are going to be living their lives in a way that is being a good representation of who Jesus is. Now, here's one of the things about being an elder in a church, especially about being a a pastor, is that People watch you wherever you go. They're paying attention to you. They're like, oh, let's see what he's about. I remember one, one day I was at Best Buy in Oceanside. And I'm, I'm uh, you know, looking for something. And I'm on this aisle and there's a, you know, the, the rack in, in, in front of me, you know, the long rack. And I don't know if you've ever been there. I haven't been there in a while, but they used to be the racks were, were short, you know, like they were, you could see over top. And so on the other aisle, there's a guy there and he's like just staring at me. He's looking at me. And I'm like, you know, I'm shopping. I'm looking up like, you know, it's like, what's going on? You know, I'm looking, you know, and he just keeps looking at me like, what is this guy's problem? And finally I said, I said, do I know you? He's like, yeah, I go to your church, you know, and, and I, I didn't recognize him. I didn't know him, but, but he's just watching, and people do that. They're always watching. Denise and I, we, everywhere we go, usually, we run into somebody from the church, and, and we'll, we'll notice, like, before they'll ever come over, you know, to say, hi, we're at a restaurant, they're watching, what's he going to order, you know, and that type of thing. And it's part of what, what um, a guy by the name of Joseph Stoll called being in the fishbowl. 
And like when you become a pastor, you become an elder, you, it's like your life gets put in a fishbowl. And I'll be honest with you, that used to drive me crazy. I used to just really, really be bothered by that, and especially because it was particularly hard on my kids. When my kids were younger, they didn't like being in the fishbowl, and people had a tendency to particularly you know, be extra hard on them in Sunday school, and they went to a Christian school, and it's like, your dad's a pastor, you should know that, or your dad's a pastor, you, know, you, you shouldn't you know, act that way, and, and just kind of a, a higher standard, and I really felt this pressure for a long time, like to be perfect. And there was one Sunday morning, probably about 15 years ago, I was driving to church and I was running late. In fact, it was before cell phones, so I don't know how long, how long have cell phones been around, you know? It was a long time ago, before cell phones, so I couldn't call to say, hey, I'm running late, but I was running late. And I came to this light, and it turned red, and I had to stop, but I had this great idea that I would turn right at that street and I would cut through the parking lot of the, the store on the other side and you know get out and beat the light and get here on time. So that's exactly what I did. I thought it was brilliant. I don't think it's legal, <laughs> but I thought it was brilliant. Well, I didn't know this. There was a couple from the church right behind me. And they came up to me after service and said, hey, we saw what you did today in coming to church and how you cut you know, through there. And, and, and they were like, you know, God, we were so disappointed. They left the church over that. And it broke my heart. That was my first response was like, oh, my second response was like anger. Like, like this is just not fair. You know, he's just watching me, you know, kind of a thing. And just being in the fishbowl. And I just, for a long time, I, I just found it where I was like struggling with that until I was reading something that this guy Joseph Stolhead wrote. And he put it this way, and it changed my whole perspective. He said, you know, it's, it's not to be a burden, it's a privilege, Because what it means is that God has chosen you to live your life before others in a way to be an example to them. And God has chosen you and your family for that specific calling. And it just changed my whole perspective. I I began to talk to my kids about, hey guys, this, this isn't to be a drag. This is a privilege. God has chosen us. And I say that because if you are ever responding to a role in ministry, you, you become a part of the fishbowl. It means you're going to be watched. But don't look at it as a burden. Look at it as a privilege that God is, is calling me to be one who can live my life as an example before the body. So when I'm asking somebody to pray about, you know, being involved in ministry or to come and be involved in leadership, I always say, hey, you need to pray. You need to pray because you need to hear from God that God is calling you into this. So the first qualification is that he is to be blameless. And then he shows us some categories of where he is to be blameless, that he is to be blameless, first of all, in his relationships, starting with his family. Paul mentions here that he's to be the husband of one wife. Now, it's unlikely that Paul meant by these words um, that all church leaders must be married. Some people have argued this. No, they need, you know, it means a pastor, an elder. He needs to be married. Well, Paul wasn't married when he wrote this. 
Titus, they think, wasn't married either when Paul was writing this. So I don't think that's what he's talking about. What's he referring to? Some have asked, well, is this referring to polygamy? You know, he, can't have, he couldn't have two wives. Well, polygamy wasn't in vogue in the Roman Empire. In fact, it was against the law to have two wives in the Roman Empire. So what about someone whose spouse has died and they remarried? Or what about somebody who got divorced and and were they divorced when they were a believer or an unbeliever? And did they get divorced for biblical reasons or not biblical reasons? And all these questions have come up. And if you have some of these questions, we we can talk about it afterwards. But but I want to just say this. Paul's focus here, I don't think, is on any of those things. When he writes this, if they were, I think he would have went into them in great detail and explained. Paul's focus is this. It's on a husband's commitment to his wife. And this, the husband of one wife, what one wife literally means that he is to be a one woman man. So the literal phrasing seems less concerned with one's marital history, but it's more focused on whether the man who is being considered for office is perceived as living honestly and in faithfulness and in devotion to his spouse. That that's the issue. Is he faithful and, and, and is he a devoted husband who is loving his wife well and is that manifested is that being manifested in her life that we see her as a woman who just is confident because she knows how well she is being loved that she is a woman who loves her husband and loves the church and is in love with jesus so he's to be blameless in relationship to his wife. He's also to be blameless in relation to his children. Some of you sent me some questions about this one. It says, having faithful, the word faithful there means believing in the faith. So it's kids that are believers, we could say. Having faithful children, believing children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. The New Living Translation puts it this way, who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. One of the guys that wrote me a question, he said, I, I, I laugh, pastor's kids, it's kind of notorious that they have this you know, reputation for being wild and rebellious and And um, I think that's true in some senses, but not in all. But the word I want you to note, first of all here, is that the word children is tekna in the Greek. And it refers, first of all, to children who are in the home. Children who are at a formative age, it's talking about here. So kids who are in their late teens, kids who are out of the house, this word isn't applicable to them. It's talking about younger kids, kids who are in that formative age. And as we break this down, I think this will become even more clear. But we need to note this, that the scriptures are very, very clear. That parents, it's the role of the parents, they are responsible to nurture and to bring their kids up in the way of the Lord. Listen, our children's ministry, it's not their job to raise your kids and teach your kids 
um, to walk with Jesus. It's not our youth pastor's job to raise your kids and teach your kids to walk with Jesus. Our children's ministry and our youth pastors, their job is to assist you in what you are already teaching them, what you are already sharing them with them. So it is the parent's responsibility. That is clear in Scripture. Read Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, other passages that, that makes it very, very clear that it's the parent's job. But what Paul's talking about here, and he's making it clear that a person is not ready for the responsibilities of ministering to others. He's not ready for the spiritual welfare of caring for others if he's not able to take responsibility for those who are in his own house. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy 3 verse 4. He must manage his own family well. The other thing we need to note here is the word that Paul uses for children is plural. Meaning, and this is the key, I want you to write this down. You have to look at the whole family. You have to look at the whole family. You have to look at all the kids. Meaning that if a man has, say, four kids, and three of them love Jesus and are great kids, and they are well-behaved, but one of them is a prodigal, that doesn't disqualify him. That one child doesn't disqualify him because he's judged, according to this, by the whole family. It's plural. It's his children looking at all of them. Now, if all the kids are rebellious, if none of his kids want anything to do with God, I don't care how good of a Bible teacher that guy is, he's disqualified. His family is not in order. But if all of his kids are great, hey, Mark, can you make sure that the speaker's not on? Okay. In the foyer for the ladies. But if all of his kids are great in following Jesus and one of them strays, that doesn't disqualify him. And those of you who have raised kids to adulthood, you know how challenging this can be. And it amazes me over the years as I, I have watched families here in this church and I'll see somebody that has, you know, four kids and three of them are just amazing. And they're walking with Jesus and loving Jesus and following Jesus. And then one of them just has a bent toward rebellion. Or one of them just has a bent toward the things of the world. Or one of them is just drawn. And you know, they raised all three of these kids the same. In fact, some of them I know as I've counseled with them, they've spent more time and more effort on the rebellious one. But some kids... And for those of you who have young kids, I, I just pray that you won't experience this, but I've seen it happen often, that there's just one kid that just seems more attracted to the things of the world than he is the things of the Lord. And he just seems to have that bent in him where, or her where, you know, you've heard this saying, they're just going to have to learn things the hard way. And you see people that like, you know, the only way that that kid, and I've seen this happen over and over again, the only way that they're going to come to the place where they're really sold out for Jesus is they have to first get beat up by the world. And they go through that. But they've been raised all the same. And so um, that doesn't disqualify them. You look at the whole package when it says children. It's saying, look at the whole family. So he's to be blameless in his relationship with his wife, blameless in relationship to his husband, blameless in his conduct. And in verses 7 and 8, Paul's going to give us five negative things 
and then six positive things that are to be a part of the elder's life. He says, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Those are the negative things, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, and self-controlled. Those are the positive things. So let's break this down. Not self-willed. That means not pleasing self. In other words, he's not into himself. He's not seeking fame. He's not seeking, you know, I want this position so everybody thinks more highly of me. He's not into himself. It's not about him. There was a little boy who would go to church with his mother. And at that church, they had a pastor who's a big dude, ex-football player, like 6'5", and this wide, and he would stand up at the pulpit. Well, behind the, the church, they, they had a stained glass window, and it was a picture of Jesus, but th- this kid would always sit in the front row with his mom, and when he would look up at the, the pastor, the pastor was so big, he could never see the picture of Jesus. Well, one day the pastor was gone, and there was a real short little guy in the pulpit. And as he was preaching, his, his little boy leans over to his mom and goes, Mom, where's the guy who never lets us see Jesus? Sometimes guys can be that way because it's all about them. It's all about who they are. It's all about, it's all about the pastor. The NIV, in using this term, says not overbearing. It's the idea of... People in leadership who have been you know, accused of abuse, of authority, or being bullies. We're hearing a lot about that today. And this is the mentality. This is how this happens. Is it's in the life of the leader or the pastor who thinks in this way, you, the people, and you who are on staff exist to carry out my vision. That's why you're here. To help me fulfill my calling. You, advi- you exist for me. And so they're always pushing people and driving people. You know in Israel you never ever see sheep. And in Jesus' time you'd never ever see sheep being driven. You know they drive cattle. You never see sheep. Sheep are always being led. They're following a shepherd. You know whenever you would see sheep being driven, they were being driven by a butcher to the slaughterhouse. And so the leader, he's not overbearing in that type of way. I think the role of the person who's an elder, a pastor, a leader is, is our job is to get them to Jesus. That's our job. That's our heart. He mentions in verse 7, a steward. And it's the idea of this, that God has placed something into your care. And you know what he's placed into our care, guys? His precious bride. Think about that. His bride that the Bible says he purchased with his own blood. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. If I was going away on a trip, you know, I'm going to, on a mission trip for a month, and I pick one of you guys and I say, hey, while I'm gone, I want you to take care of my bride, Denise. I want you to take care of my kids. I want you to take care of my grandkids. I'm entrusting them into your care. I want you to look out for them. If I come back and I find out that that you've been depriving them food and you've been abusing them verbally and physically, I'm going to knock you out. I'm going to be ticked. And and, and you, you would feel the same way. So I want you to think about, how does God feel? 
when people who are in positions of leadership in churches are abusing and not taking care of and not feeding his precious bride and his precious kids. I think he takes it very serious. That means, guys, this is serious business. He mentions here that they're not to be quick-tempered. And anger is usually related to pride. And a man who thinks that it's all about him will get easily frustrated and quick-tempered. And a quick-tempered man is always a spark away from just blowing up. He mentions the next thing, not given to wine. Now, the word given here in the Greek is perionis. And it means this, not sitting long with wine. So the idea here is this, is that it's not a regular part of his wife. It carries the idea of always drinking and even being addicted to it. And the reason he says this is an elder should not be addicted to, given like in, that it's a, it's a regular part of his life because you want your elders to be filled and influenced by the Holy Spirit and not wine, not alcohol. Now, I will say this. The Bible doesn't condone or condemn, excuse me, drunk, doesn't condemn um, drinking, but it condemns drunkenness. Drunkenness is a sin. Now, I say this. A great way to not get drunk is to not drink, you know? But if you have that liberty, that's the thing that it says is that that you can't be given to it. You can't be addicted to it. It can't become an addiction. Now, I want to explain that, though, because I think that means this. You might not ever get drunk, but if you can't relax without a drink... If you can't go to sleep without a drink, you're given to it. It's something that, that, that you are needing in your life. That's the idea that, that Paul, it's an addictive behavior. This is what the passage is warning about, not given to wine. And then he says, not violent, not an abuser of people is the idea. That could be physically, verbally, psychologically, or spiritually. It's the idea of using your influence and position to manipulate others and lay guilt trips on them. And then he mentions not not greedy for money. Not in it for the money. I love what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So Paul gives us here five negative traits. And then real quickly, he gives us five positive traits in verse 8. Starting with hospitable. Being hospitable is a person who is, you know, willing to open up their home, but, you know, you might not have a home that is, that you can bring people into. So it's just the idea of being a lover of people, being one who loves to be around people. You know, some people, you maybe have heard this, sometimes I'll hear pastors say, man, ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. I hate when guys say that. 
Because ministry is about the people. It's first about Jesus, but it's about bringing people to Jesus. It's about helping people grow in Jesus. And there's always going to be hurting people and difficult people and difficult situations in ministry. In fact, I describe ministry in this way. This has been what I've experienced in ministry for 30 plus years. It's, it's sitting down with somebody, teaching them what the Bible says about their situation, watching them go do the complete opposite and fall on their face and get in trouble and get hurt and then being there afterwards to not say, stupid, I told you so, but being there to lovingly care for them and nurture them and bring them back. So, hospitable. A lover of what is good. And the idea is that he's focused on the right things. Paul would say in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Loving what is good. But it's not just loving what is good, but it's doing good. This trait describes one who is tireless in his activities, but it's activities that are prompted by love. Sober-minded, this describes the person who is able to think clearly and with clarity. I love what Warren Wearsby said about this. He says, this does not mean that he has no sense of humor or that he's always solemn and somber, but rather it suggests that he knows the value of the things and does not cheapen the ministry of the gospel message by foolish behavior. And then he mentions these three, just, holy, and self-controlled. So a pastor or leader in the church must be just. The idea there is he's right in his actions toward men. He must be holy. That means he's right towards God. And then he must be self-controlled. He's right toward himself. And then finally, in verse 9, he says, holding fast to the faithful word as he has been taught.